Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Phil Hardman in this episode. Phil developed the DOMS Learning Design Framework, and her focus on learning design is based on a dedication to the science of learning. She maintains several channels highlighting the development of learning activities with a creative and scholarly approach to innovation. I'm talking with Dr. Phil Hardman, who is creator of the DOMS Learning Design Framework and an authority on learning design. Phil is a fount of knowledge and enthusiasm on the practice and development of learning design theory and practice. She's an affiliated scholar with the University of Cambridge and has spent over 20 years researching online and hybrid course design. And Phil is also a recommendation of a listener who writes, I'd like to recommend a guest for the podcast, Dr. Philippa Hardman. I find her insights on learning design really helpful and her DOMS framework is awesome and has elevated my learning design 10 times. So Phil, great to be talking with you. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a, what a nice, I, I didn't know I had that recommendation. That's so nice. Thank you. And yeah, hi, Mark. It's it's really great to be here. It sounds as like that was earned. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Yeah, sure. So um, I think I probably have quite an unusual career in that I am uh, like an academic by training. So I did a PhD out of the history department, actually, at the University of Sheffield a good few years back now. And it just so happened to be the case that as I was doing my PhD, um, we were seeing the rise of digital humanities, as we used to call them, but effectively like the integration of technology into both research, teaching, learning. So I just became very interested in how we could use technology to enhance partly the efficiency, but more the effectiveness of the of the teaching learning experience. So I became, I kind of transitioned out of history things into teaching and learning research. Um, and yeah, I, I did a postdoc at Cambridge University. I'm still an affiliated scholar there, as you mentioned, but my real passion now is uh, ed tech. So I've spent the last few years in leadership positions in an OPM, uh, in an ed tech startup, and I've more recently founded my my own startup, DOMS. And my, my mission really, all of my research has been centered around this question of uh, how we do a better job of integrating the science of learning. So really what we know about what is an optimal learning um, environment. How do we integrate that better with how we design learning experiences? And I think what's interesting is that that's a question that applies not just to the online uh, learning environment, which I think actually gets uh, quite a lot of criticism and a lot of like negative attention, but it applies also to a lot of the learning experiences that, that one has in the flesh. And so one analogy that I, I use quite often is that, you know, a, a long video uh, lecture followed by a quiz is as ineffective as a in the flesh lecture followed by a any questions question, because it's fundamentally the, the pedagogy that's flawed. So I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in this kind of the fact that there is a lack of intersection between learning science and the way we design and deliver learning experiences. And of course, what we might do to try and bring those two things together more and actually uh, empower people to design learning experiences using learning science. 
Mm. I'm really fascinated by the fact that you don't talk about online learning, you talk about learning science. Um, it's just a, quite a fascinating difference because quite often the, the popular dialogue is about online learning. But in actual fact, it's learning science where the actual difference is made, where the actual teaching and learning process occurs. Is that a deliberate uh, adjustment from you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the reason being is that like, I think often the technology gets the blame. <laughs> uh, so we say, oh, you know, Online learning is broken. If only we had better technology, then everything would be okay. Sometimes it's like, oh, if only we had uh, better content, you know, if we had like HD videos and, you know, whatever, uh, immersive stuff, VR, AR, then the experience would be better. And so, yes, I've made a very deliberate decision to focus not on modes because actually all of the research shows that the mode really is almost incidental. Uh, all of the research shows that a bad pedagogy is a bad pedagogy. You can, you know, stick it online, as I've just said, or, or like deliver it in the flesh. The result is about the same. Same for a good experience. It can be equally as good online as it is in the flesh if designed right. And so, yeah, I've made this very deliberate decision to focus less on the mode and more on the science. It's a little bit like I feel for for a good few decades now when we've talked about, particularly in the last 30 years, we've really started to talk more um as a community about what is learning design, what is instructional design, what's a great learning experience. And it feels uh, maybe like a helpful parallel will be to think about uh, the building industry. It feels like we've done the equivalent of kind of looking at a built house and saying, no, nah, it's not very good. Um, but what we've not done is kind of gone back to the drawing board and thought about, well, what are the, what's the blueprint that we need in order to get a great experience out of the end? So yeah, a uh, very deliberate decision to talk more about uh, discovery and design rather than delivery. Mm, excellent. So uh, the ideas and themes your work has provided, and there's quite a bit of recent work, so this is probably going to be a long response, which I'm most welcome. Uh, the ideas and themes your work has provided that you sense are still pertinent today. I think like, fundamentally I have been like banging on about the same thing for the past 20-odd uh, years, but you know, remains true, which is that this is a fascinating situation. I'm not sure whether I find it uh, more fascinating or more frustrating, really, but there is this fascinating situation where, you know, my research keeps finding that we do know, we know how to optimise for the two big things, two big M's, as I like to call them. One is motivation, learner motivation. Like, you can build something over here and it's 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 awesome, but it doesn't matter. If, if, no, if nobody cares, then nobody cares if it's good or if it's bad. What's fascinating, though, in the research is that we know we know how to drive intrinsic learner motivation. There are some very concrete things that we know work. Um, we also know the other big M, mastery. So mastery for me is uh, a sequence process of uh, developing foundational knowledge, so sort of being able to memorize and recall the right concepts at the right time in the right way. There's a layer then of understanding, actually getting to grips with that, thinking about what it means, thinking about what it looks like in practice, and then mastery being uh, being able to evaluate, critically analyze, create stuff off the back of it, be original. We also know a lot about how to do all of that. And yet still it's the case that um, that understanding that we have, that evidence that we have just isn't translating through to how we design learning experiences. And I, and I recently did a a very short research project, short kind of intensive sprint, where I said, okay, if we took the learning science research from the last 30 years, broke it down into a set of indicators of quality. So things that, for example, uh, motivate learners. Um, 
And I then use that rubric that I created from that evidence, it's about 30 checkpoints, something like that, to uh, score, if you like, uh, yeah. a, a, a random sample of learning experiences, some of which were fully online, some of which were hybrid, some of which were in the flesh, uh, L&D, K-12, uh, HE. It was, you know, deliberately varied. And again and again and again, like they just, they fail. Like they don't, none of them were optimized in a way they could have been given who we're trying to teach, what we're trying to teach and the kind of budgets involved. And that for me has just been a theme throughout my research, which I'm really fascinated about. And then the other element to it, if I may, and I, you're right, this is quite a long answer, <laughs> uh, is um, I've just always been fascinated by the fact that technology in the world has been incredibly disruptive. It's changed lots and lots of things. Uh, even the way we're recording this right now, or the way that we now consume music is so different from you know 20 years ago when I had to spend 30 quid to get an album, uh, for example. Uh, I now spend seven pounds a month and can access anything anytime. Yeah. There's been lots of different examples in different contexts of the disruption of technology. And we haven't seen that in education. We have instead seen technology used to really reinforce what we do already. We've seen MOOCs, for example, which uh, digitize lectures. So they increase access to what we already do, but they don't change fundamentally what we do. Mm. And all of the, the LMSs, VLEs, whatever we want to call them, the platforms which we see, even the, the more commercial platforms like Udemy, Coursera, etc., they all reproduce uh, a pedagogy that we're probably all very familiar with. Mm. That kind of chalk and talk, here's some content, do a knowledge check, get a certificate yeah. type um, situation. And so what fascinates me and what I'm continuing to research is this question around like, why has technology not been more disruptive in the world of education? And then of course, we've been talking now for a you know, 10 minutes-ish, so inevitably we need to talk about AI. But the big question I have around AI is, will we do the same again? Mm. Are we going to use AI to just get faster at what we already do? Yeah. So is it faster horses, to use the Ford analogy, <laughs> or are we going to build a car? And so I'm sort of excited, fascinated, a bit terrified to continue to research and to think about, like, is this the moment that education is finally disrupted by technology or do we see again like the similar pattern where which we are seeing so far i'm afraid to say where we use ai to uh, do what we already do faster so create content faster uh, generate quizzes automatically this kind of thing rather than stepping back and thinking about the pedagogy and so that is another space where i like to research and really push on i really like to kind of question why are we using technology in this way? And what would it look like if we used it in a different way? Which, Mark, you may have noticed is like the question that I sort of come back to quite a lot on my uh, my blog. Yeah, it's actually the right question. And I, I do want to probe you a little bit on this because I'm fascinated by why we haven't made such big differences or leaps forward now that we have such incredible technology available to us. I mean, the imagination's there. Uh, the pedagogies are certainly there. Mm. Um I mean, is it ignorance? Is it the way in which our universities are designed? Is it um, our uh, uncriticized assumptions about education, teaching, learning, how it takes place? What, what's your call? If, if we had to change one thing to really, really change the education landscape because of what's possible now, what would it be? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, hmm, 
the it's probably not a fair one either. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I'm not, you may you maybe have some time. I have to pick one, but I'm you know I will definitely put a stake in the ground. But I think that one of the reasons that it hasn't been more disruptive is because it's complex. There's a lot going on. Yeah. So I think. Um, there's a big, and I've seen this first firsthand as an educator, and then as someone who worked with educators in in, in higher ed. There's a, a long established way of teaching and learning, the way that we, you know, uh, my professors at, at Sheffield, for example, were taught through the lecture model. I was taught through the lecture model. I then inherited that and lectured my students. We live in a world where there is an established pedagogy and. Uh, the you know we associate teaching and learning with content and uh, knowledge checks, exams, essays, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a big, uh, interesting, I think, cultural uh, question there around change and the rates of change. And then if we if we look at the education system uh, in most countries, it's so established, it's so bureaucratic. Uh, these are huge, often old institutions uh, which have established ways of thinking, operating. And so it's hard to disrupt an institution like that, um, much more so than a more commercial, agile context, like, for example, the music industry. Um, I think if I could change one thing, it would be for the ed tech world to have more ed people in it. Mm. I think to be fair to educators who have been uh, provided with technology, they've been provided with technologies which, as I've said earlier, just reproduce what we already do. They kind of add on a layer of admin and technical jeopardy to something that is very similar to what I already do. So I always picture like the blackboard versus interactive whiteboard. Mm. It's like fair enough if you don't have the time and energy to do this. And this is another thing. Educators have already got 300 things on their plate if they need actually need technology to be more disruptive in order for it to feel valuable and worth their time. So I think, yeah, I would, I would, I would ask the ed tech world to employ more education people so that we can have more interesting and more equal um, and informed conversations about what are those high leverage technologies that would make your life easier and it better enable you to be able to deliver pedagogies that we know will have more impact and I think also from a the if I put my academics hat on I think also that might uh, encourage academics to be a little bit more open to conversations which perhaps sometimes feel very commercial yeah uh, like they're from a different part of the world like the I've transitioned from ed uh, education into ed tech and there couldn't be like two more different environments people ages language everything is different mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah there's something about injecting well, again, just bringing together these two worlds more to have a more fruitful and, and positive conversation. And then um, the final point is a bigger one, a political one around, you know, where we have established institutions, we also have established systems of power and influence. And so I think there's two things here. One is that people just often are scared of disruption, uh, scared of change and the implications that might have. Uh, and the other is that the, those in education who are making decisions about technology are not the people who use it. Mm. And I think there's an interesting tension here that we have a, um, like I think the average age of like a provost, a chancellor in the UK is, is you know, 60, 70 odd years old. And the users on the ground are 18 year olds of a totally different generation with a different experience <laughs> and expectation. And so I think something else that I love to do 
is to bring learners into the room when we're talking about learning design and actually to get their perspective, to make fewer assumptions about what they want and what they need, and to get that voice into the mix, almost like the product user's voice, as well as uh, the kind of pedagogy voice into that space. Yeah. I'm really captured by uh, your comment earlier about designing faster horses, and it does seem as though that does characterize education. It won't be long, though, before someone invents a, uh, well, probably a, an e-vehicle now uh, that will possibly overtake a lot of what universities are doing. Um, I, th- I think there's various reasons why that hasn't happened. A, a lot of uh, education is nationally subsidized, so it'd be quite hard for a disruptor to come through. But where do you think this might end up? In higher ed in particular? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. What, what I've seen so far is, okay, so, so putting my historian hat on, Precedent tells me if I had to put a stake in the ground and put my house on it, uh, that we will either choose not to invest in new technologies like AI, or we will, yeah, by banning them, for example, um, or we will use them to do what we already do faster, better, faster horses. Yeah. So that's what like precedent would say. Um, what I'm seeing, though, is an interesting conversation going on in, in higher ed in, like, across the world, which is um, – and in, this is perhaps a, uh, an implication and a repercussion of, of uh, COVID, but there is definitely a new appetite, more of an appetite than I've seen before, for experimentation. So there is, a, there is always a, a section of the community that, that is very much, you know, the, the GPT zero crowd, as I like to call them. So the people who, who want to – and I understand, I understand this is scary and that's, that feels the safest thing to do is to ban chat GPT, to detect it – and basically try and eliminate AI through detection. Um, but I think what will happen, I think AI is more like where technology before has been an option, I suppose. So like a university could choose to invest in an LMS or not, to go hybrid or high flex or not. Yeah. This is more like to me, uh, like the printing press. It's like it's happening in the world. It's a thing that is almost out of their control is not optional. And so I, I would predict that what we will see is there will, there will be an amount of repression. I think there will be an, then an amount of integration. And I think what we'll see is probably something similar to like the flipped classroom where um, students do research at home and they use ChatGP to do the research and stuff. But like some of the assessment and the performance happens in the classroom off the back of that to like so there's sort of like partial mm. uh, management um but then ultimately i see huge potential actually for ai if if i think those institutions which are willing to embrace it and really engage with it on a pedagogical level what i see is 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 really for the first time in that in in 20 odd years of research i see the potential for AI to help us to deliver on our promise, the promise that higher education makes to put into the world people who, of course, have domain knowledge. Like, you have to prove to me that you can tell me, in my case, like about history, get the dates right. But also critical thinkers, creative thinkers, original thinkers, people who are, um, you know, active active in the democratic system, who are able to ask the right questions, to identify what a problem is, why it's a problem and how we might resolve it. All of these so-called 21st century skills that the World Economic Forum talks about. And I think partly because new technologies like AI automate regurgitation. So I can 
you know, go away now, write your master's essay, thank you very much, just by prompting ChatGPT. What it can't do is that latter end of the kind of higher order skills, we might call them. But it, it provides us with the fodder to then go and do much more interesting things, things which are much more impactful, mm. things that better prepare a graduate for the workplace, like critical thinking, analysis, application, uh, and creation and originality. So I am extremely um, excited about the potential of using technology in the higher education system to, to deliver on this promise that we kind of vaguely make, mm. that we, we will make you work ready, we will get you a job. But at the moment, it feels a little bit like that promise is, a, it's almost like a game. It's like if you come through and jump through the hoops, I give you a piece of paper, and then that gets you a job but then you need to do a graduate traineeship because it's actually just all been a bit of a game and a ritual. So I see this as a potential way of forcing us, and I include myself in this, you know, forcing us to be more accountable to that promise and to actually delivering on it and enabling us to do that more, like more effectively, more quickly than, than we've been able to before. Mm-hmm. I have to say too that that enthusiasm and, and practicality comes through on your Substack channel. So um, I was looking at the undoing, uh, the Edu Mega Prompts um, entry you did on ChatGPT. I had a go at undoing it. It was brilliant. Uh, I think that's the thing that inspires me most about your scholarship. You've obviously got the, the grounding, deep, deep roots in uh, learning science. But above it all is this curiosity and this willingness to experiment and this just fascination with actually doing stuff. Uh, which comes through quite strongly in your work. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I just, I'm a great believer in very rapid research and getting hands-on um, and also just having a conversation. When I go out into the world and I, you know, try prompts, write prompts, edit them and then put them out, it's very much an invitation for people to try them too, as you have, mm. and, you know, tell me what I got wrong. Like, it's, it's almost crowdsourcing research and I think it's brilliant and I think uh, I love it. So I'm very grateful for my uh, enthusiastic and uh, patient community. <laughs> Excellent. We might have already touched on this, but I'm interested to know if there's uh, any other answer you might want to add here. So your observations about online learning and education at the present time, start of 2023, uh, ChatGPT is making the headlines uh, and almost every single LinkedIn contact I have has something to say about it. What are your observations about things at the present time, whether just ChatGPT or more broadly? Yeah, so I think, again, like my main observation or the thing that I'm keeping an eye on is how are we using this thing? I think AI is definitely going to be around. Like I'm just working on the assumption that it's around. Uh, I'm also working on the assumption that we can definitely use AI to automate a lot of the grind that we do um, and to do you know some of the basics like um, create content faster, create quizzes faster. The thing that I am keeping my eye on is like, is this a moment of disruption or not? Are we going to start seeing people using this to, for example, scrap the essay mm. or rethink the essay and and, and rethink uh, things like uh, mark schemes to require us? So I've done, a again, just a very brief research project recently on what do mark schemes look like in higher ed? Mm. So I, you know, many of them are freely available. And it's really interesting that already they're broken in the sense that in order to get um, a solid 2-1, uh, I have to be able to tell, like speak back an amount from a, a certain range of sources uh, to show an awareness of the field. Mm. gets a little bit more sketchy when we get to the first because there's an amount of um, like the requirement of 
additional thinking, of finding new sources, of having new ideas. But there's also stuff that ChatGPT can do. So, for example, one of the big things at Cambridge to get a first, it's all about like, well, put, put your opinion into its broader economic, historical, political context. And so that's why I've been, I've been asking ChatGPT if it can do that. And, and it can. And I'm quite confident that, that I could write a first-class degree that anybody could write uh, with a mark scheme, uh, a first-class essay, sorry, with ChatGPT. So I think, yeah, my observation is that it could go, and it is going, one of two ways. We're seeing people like, brilliant, okay, no more essays, I'm changing my mark scheme. And, uh, for example, uh, the my assessment is now have ChatGPT generate two versions of something and then critique it mm-hmm. or, um, you know, find, ask ChatGPT to have an opinion on something and you'll find it, it won't. And so you have to fill in the gaps, whatever it is like, but there, I'm seeing people experimenting with assessment in particular. And, uh, so yeah, I'm just keeping an eye on how the battle between repressing and embracing AI goes. Um, so yeah, in my mind, we're at this crossroads and we have one direction, which is like significant disruption, and the other direction, which is a continuation of the systems of power, the systems of teaching and learning, uh, the structures, the bureaucracy that we already that we have. Um, and I imagine, actually, in the end, we will take both routes, and we will have like higher education will become uh, an interesting world of innovative. Uh, institutions and traditional institutions that trade on that. Um, but we shall see. I am fascinated. As you say, it's everywhere every day and it's changing every day. So I'm just, uh, yeah, my biggest challenge at the moment is going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly sounds it. <laughs> Phil, uh, the, the research you'd most like to see, if uh, the perfect research paper suddenly appeared in your inbox, what would it be about? For me, it would be, it would be a research paper which gave more insight. The one thing that we're not good at, we've never been good at, it's not one thing. One of the things that we as educators haven't been great at um, is measuring impact on outcomes. So I would love to see, and I do think, just as an aside, that AI could get us here, uh, because it has some really interesting implications for data collection um, and assessment, not just within the learning experience, but just behaviorally over time. But one thing we've not been great at is is being able to measure or, or trying to measure the impact of a learning experience actually on a human being, be that what they know, what they can do, or what they go on to achieve. It's very hard to track that and then it's very hard to prove like a causal relationship between things so i would love to see a paper land in my inbox which is about how uh, somebody has um cracked this black box this data black box and somehow um given us the tools that we need to be able to understand what is it that leads to you know, that optimizes for, for, for motivation and mastery. We kind of know that already, mm. but to what end and what are the, the specific interventions in detail that we need to be able to, to hit those outcomes? And I think, like, as I say, that's one of the most exciting areas of, of AI for me is thinking about. So at the moment, we tend to stop and assess. So, you know, 
we do formative assessment along as we go. And then we do a, something summative usually at the end, some sort of project, an exam, an essay, whatever. But re- a lot of the research shows that, that that coming out of the moment in order to be assessed actually undermines the process of assessment in itself. And that actually what we should be assessing is things like, yes, of course, your achievement, like what's the quality of your output, but perhaps more importantly, particularly if we go back to 21st century skills, uh, like what's your what's your process, your performance, your behavioural um, assessment? How long did it take Phil to I don't know solve this problem, and how did she go about uh, researching it? If we can track those kind of things and those data sets, then yeah, we open up this this whole new world where we understand directly the relationship between this action and this outcome. And I expect that that will be different for every maybe for every person. So like this idea of um, AI really lifting, like opening up this black box of data and saying, here we go. Um, and then holding us to account on that and saying, you know, therefore we have the data, let's design these things in a way that that works for everybody, not just for a, a kind of portion of, of society that's really good at reading lots of stuff and then speaking it back. Yeah. So could that be uh, almost like an experimental design where you take two different learning designs, put them side by side, a similar um, demographic of learner, evaluate the results and check the analytics on their engagement with with both learning designs? Is that the style of um, design that might might work here? Yeah. I mean, some A-B testing would be fantastic. I think, um, and you're right, yeah. I think I would love to measure... I mean, at the moment, we measure uh, what we can measure. So we tend to measure the success of a learning experience on uh, did they show up, did they stay, and then are they happy at the end? And, of course, in higher ed, we look at student satisfaction scores, we look at grades, um, but we don't understand the relationship between, if there is a relationship between achievement, like between a learning experience and the outcome ultimately the impact that we promise off the back of it we do a lot of promising but we don't actually deliver so yeah like some side-by-side comparison of measurements within the learning experience but perhaps more interestingly if, if if for example and bear with me but if for example there is a world in which we all have a personal ai tutor who uh is by our side we effectively build a personal algorithm so they're by our side they understand how we learn best, what we learn best. They can track us over time. They can see how this behavior led to this change, led to this change. And so there's something about that kind of longevity of it as well that I think would need to be part of that dream research. It's like we've we've traced this map of of the interrelation between like a learning intervention and an impact over time. And here's all the answers so that we can all retire and <laughs> go home. Mm, so almost a longitudinal study, almost like a lifetime of learning. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, do, I do recall a book by, I think it was Alfred Bork uh, in the 90s, which talked about that as a, as a theme. Uh, I remember reviewing it for a journal thinking, wow, this is so far-fetched. <laughs> but uh, it's, now, it's now on our doorstep. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the future is here, Mark. And uh, yeah, and I think, um, so I'm actually involved at the moment with a, working with a guy called Gianluca Maro, who is an AI expert. He's on TikTok. He's brilliant. 
I'm not meant to be on TikTok because I'm in my 40s, but I'm there anyway. I do apologize. And um, <laughs> yeah, we're looking at like, what is the most disruptive thing we could do in a positive way? What's the, what's the most positive disruption that we could mm. bring to education if we could using AI? And, and that data piece is definitely um, well in there because it's just not been possible before, as you say. It's been kind of a, it's been something we've talked about, but something that just hasn't been achievable without tracking human beings and it being very laborious and in practice actually it's been I've, I've known you know when I've worked in OPMs and, and ed tech companies it's actually incredibly difficult to get at data that sits within an organization or a different institution for obvious reasons uh, for GDPR and this kind of thing so there's something about being able as a learner to own your data but also to be able to track it long term that's like really really interesting so that's one of the the areas that we're exploring at the moment. Which brings me on to my last question, actually. Two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning. Uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you and one who you think otherwise has an important perspective to share. Uh, I've always been a big fan of like interdisciplinary approaches. And when I was thinking about this in advance, I was thinking, actually, the people who have influenced me most are, are definitely uh, leaders and legends of online learning, but they're not necessarily people we would call uh, pedagogues or uh, learning designers. Um, the person who always springs to mind is, is, I think, you know, when you have those moments where someone just like says something and it just sort of reframes and gives you a bit of clarity on something that you've been, maybe been musing on for a long time. And, and one person who really articulated what I'd been trying to say, but I didn't say it as well at all, uh, is a guy called Seth Godin, who you may have heard of. He's a, a, a big name in marketing, I think it is, and leadership. Um, and what I love about Seth's work is that it is so crisp and clear because he's a marketer. Um, and so when Seth entered the world of online learning through his, um, so he designed the Alt-MBA, I really um, was inspired by um, seeing in practice a lot of the principles that I was trying to put into place within a higher education context, but for lots of reasons was only able to sort of just push, you know, a couple of inches in one direction. What he did was 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 tear everything up to some extent and say, Do you know what? The MBA, MBAs as we know them are broken. They are too expensive. They're too long. They're more about networking than they are about skills. Let's do something different. And what emerged, the old MBA was so like the closest thing I'd ever seen to this uh, this vision that I have of this evidence-based learning experience that takes advantage of everything that we know and puts it into practice. What really inspired me about his work and the work also of Wes Keo, who was his, his, his um, like sidekick in, in this project, was the work that they did to understand, really smart research they did to understand what is it that motivates human beings? Uh, what is it that gives human beings like a sense of commitment, attachment? And so they went out into the world and they researched, um, I believe, like a number of different groups where they where they saw um, a real, I mean, they use the word tribal sort of connection. Um, so places like the army, places like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, things where people have like life-changing experiences and they grabbed those thing, those principles and they applied them to the design of a learning experience. And I think that has always stuck with me as um, 
quite a pivotal moment, not just for me, but for the online learning world to see actually, yeah, like there's barely any content in the old MBA. Mm. It's, it's just, it's a lot of projects and it's quite distressing in that it makes you sweat so much. Uh, but it transforms people's lives and it and it make and it builds relationships that last a lifetime often. And so there is some magic in there and there is some clear proof that online learning can be not just as good as, but significantly better than uh on like in, in the flesh learning. You know, if we compare that to a three hour PowerPoint and a buffet type approach. It's very different. Yeah. So yeah, Seth Godin plus uh Wes Ko are my my uh my go-tos um for anyone who just wants to understand what great online learning looks like. And actually learning is work, isn't it? I think we, we tend to forget that when we think about um how to best uh, prepare easy, chewable content for our learners. Actually it's it's where you're forced to sweat uh, that the the real connections are made. Yeah. And actually, Mark, I'm fascinated. This brings us back maybe quite nicely to where we started around the technology, that we seem to build education technology to make life easier, to make things quicker, to make things smoother, you know, to be able to like search this thing and grab it straight away and just read it in two minutes and then we're gone. Uh, whereas actually all of the research shows that actually, yeah, like hard fun, this company in a paper, it's uh, theory of hard fun and working at the one of my frameworks within within the doms uh, learning design framework i call uh, the edge of possible it's like you need to understand where your learners are and you need to push them to the extent that they probably hate you by the end but they will leave with understanding and a level of skills development that you just can't achieve without sweat so absolutely that's that's a great uh, little nugget that i may well steal but learning is work yeah. <laughs> Feel free to take it for a public domain. <laughs> Thank you very much. Phil, it's been a fascinating conversation and actually you're doing fascinating work. Thank you so much for being a leader and legend, not just in online education, but probably the part that we all aspire to and that is learning science and real differences in students' understanding. Thank you so much for the interview. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. It's been great. You can learn more about Phil and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.